This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today comes to us from Northern Illinois, uh, Matt Potts from Distill Brewery. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. We're here in Richmond, Virginia for the Brewery Accelerator event, uh, helping breweries and planning and uh, new brewery owners kind of sharpen their businesses and help be a credit to the industry as a whole. Appreciate Matt coming out and uh, helping share your knowledge with the folks here at the Accelerator. Glad to do it. Cool, cool. You got me out of the brewery, which is an accomplishment in and of itself. So it's always a good time. Uh, before we get started, nearly two thousand breweries across the U.S., Canada, Mexico partner with GND Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GND ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River, Ninkasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and more trust GD to chill the beer you love. Call GD Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, Old Orchard invites you to step up your fruit game with their premium craft juice blends. Whether you're planning a passion fruit Kolsch, Concord Sour, Mango Lager, or other fruity brew, Old Orchard can supply you with consistent product at affordable prices. Their blends are packed with real fruit and natural flavors with no added sugar or other weird fillers like you'd find in knockoff brands. With the rising demand for fruity seltzers and brews, the time is ripe to grow your relationship with the right juice supplier. Get your Old Orchard sample kit today with free six-pack cooler at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Fruity seltzers, Matt. Everybody's making them. (laughs) Jumping right into the seltzers on me, aren't you? No, no. We'll talk about seltzers later because I know it's a subject, uh, a much-loved and sometimes-hated subject for brewers, uh, but certainly one that people are engaging in these days. We can chat about it. I think we can. I want to talk to you about some hazy IPAs. I want to talk to you about some uh, you know, kettle sour and fruited kettle sour approaches. Um, Definitely want to talk to you about barrel aging because uh, Dasvidania and that family of barrel-aged beers you produce – uh, are certainly some of my favorite beers you've made and have uh, reviewed very highly with the blind review panel at Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. I know you've also won some uh, awards for those kinds of beers, and so we'd love to dig into the the brewing mind behind that. Um, but before we do that, why don't you uh, give me a, a the quick background on Matt Potts and uh, your background in brewing and how you got where you are with uh, Distilled Brewing today. Yeah, so this is going to age me really quick, but... Uh actually started practicing law, so I'm actually a recovering attorney. Sure. Um, but uh, my wife, Lynn, bought me a homebrew kit in 1995 for Christmas. So a lot of people in our neck of the woods have heard this story a thousand times. But um, uh, my story, like so many other brewers, is, you know, it starts at homebrewing. And mine started in 1995. And, uh, uh, you know, my mistake was sharing them with my friends that, uh, who really like them. And they, you know, you start getting this confidence, um, in your brewing schools because they actually like the beers. And so started having homebrew parties at my, uh, well, we actually lived on a farm. We'd get people from law school, um, that I graduated with and undergrad and we'd have homebrew parties, essentially sure. my old college rock band. We'd get back together, <laughs> have a hay rack full of my right. homebrews and, 
Um, it gave me this all this confidence, uh, whether it was warranted or not. People about liked your homebrew. People brew. like my homebrew. They brews. didn't hate your homebrew. Correct. So that, that was, was the step era. one. That was the era where a lot of homebrewers like, oh, you want me to drink your homebrew? Right. Yeah. Ooh, yuck, yeah. So that went pretty well, and that gave me uh, enough confidence to, um, I guess, get really passionate and interested about the uh, really the business of craft beer as well, yeah. not just homebrewing and the art and science that's involved with that, but the the business of beer. So I really started geeking out with uh, the old issues of New Brewer and all sure, that back sure. in the day. And uh, so really within about uh, less than two years after I started homebrewing, this old dilapidated building one block down from my law office in a small town of Elmwood, Illinois, population 2,000 people, just a small farming community, but that's where our law office was. I was essentially in a family law practice there in Elmwood, Illinois. It's uh, like West Central Illinois. Okay. So this building came up for auction in October of 1997, about the uh, the night before the auction. Uh, I kind of remember the conversation, but this whole homebrewing thing was really interesting me, or you know, was I was really interested in uh, the business of it. And the night before the auction, I talked to Lynn and uh, said, "Hey, this building's coming up for auction tomorrow. Uh, you know, uh, down the street from the law office. I'm kind of interested in." bidding on it i don't really remember the rest of that conversation because it probably didn't go so well you know at that point my wife was married to a practicing attorney and, right right uh everything's great you know she's an attorney as well and then i've got this stupid idea about buying this building uh down the street for a potential brewery uh, it's an 1896 uh odd fellows lodge about ten thousand square feet so perfectly updated for the kind of per, uh, purpose yeah, that you might perfectly yeah, yeah. yeah ceiling uh falling down and roof is leaking and uh some somebody in the past decided it was a great idea to put plaster over the beautiful brick and, and all that but we saw potential in it and it gave me a way to get into the industry but maybe still practice law at the same time because you know in the mid 90s it wasn't really ready or willing or able to go all in on sure, brewing sure. and uh, f- sacrifice the, the legal thing or the law career. So we um, we went to the auction, you know, we put in our, you know, we were bidding on it. It was a live auction and we were bidding against the town banker and the bank was right next door to this building. So we figured, well, we won't get this, you know, he'll outbid us anyway. So we'll go ahead and raise our hand and, you know, well, he saw us bidding on it. And he probably figured whatever stupid idea we had for this building, he's <laughs> probably going to gonna make the, the <laughs> right. He was going to get to make the loan for it, right? Uh-huh. So he stopped building, and they pointed to us and said sold. So we kind of uh, get got into the industry, kind of uh, ass backwards, right? Like I had no business plan. We just like the night before this auction just decided to build. Yeah, right. Wow. So now we had a building. It's like oh, you know, I think we actually start crying because it's like holy cow, what have we just done? Spent $42,500 on this building, uh, which, uh, you know, a lot of potential there, but still a population, 2,000 people in a small right. town. Sure. It's uh, not really a tourist destination, but we saw potential in it. And, uh, of course, after that, I had to work on a business plan and uh, probably spent about a year on that. Long story short, finally got that open um, a couple, uh, actually in December of 2001, so just a short time after 9-11. Um, so that was kind of interesting. You'll kind of see a pattern here as, uh, as I go through our history about okay. national crises, um, and recessions happening as we continue to expand, uh, our 
uh, brewery business. Are you but, implying uh, correlation or causation here? I, I don't know. Sure. I, I just warn people whenever we okay. own something okay. to uh, maybe put their money uh, under the mattress instead of their 401k. Have you, have you made any significant uh, business investments over the last week? Uh, no. Um, okay. Okay. Prices are maybe good right now, perhaps. Right. But uh, so, yeah, anyway, so we opened in December of 2001. I was still practicing law at the same time, and uh, and uh, we were operating the brewery. Um, at the same time. So I would practice law for three days, three or four days a week and brew beer and run the business. Um, Since that was in a small town, though, we were really relying a lot on uh, distribution through central Illinois, really along the I-74 corridor. Um, Somewhere along the lines, though, a a developer um, that was developing a Oh, an outdoor lifestyle kind of mall and normal had approached us. She actually lived pretty close to Elmwood and she said, I really like what you're doing in Elmwood. Really, uh, would, would you like to do this in a town with people in it? <laughs> and I'm like, absolutely. Right. And that kind of gave, that was the escape hatch, I guess, to uh, finally um, stop practicing law for a living and going all in on, uh, yeah. on brewing beer. So we uh, packed up the family, Lynn and I did, in uh, December 2005 to start working on uh, what, what would become Distill. In between the two, though, I actually went to Siebel. Uh, brewing school and uh, um, really wanted to raise the bar, you know, a notch sure, going to a sure. higher populated area and had a little bit of a break between the two um, really businesses. But, um, and that was early in 2007. We broke ground in April of 2007 and finally opened. <laughs> Just in time. Yeah, right, right. So here it is. Here here comes, right? right? right. So we opened uh, our first brew pub in uh, Normal. Um, yes, there is a town called Normal, Illinois. Yeah. It is kind of normal, just, you know, normal Midwestern town, uh, home of Illinois State University. Bloomington's got uh, State Farm. Uh, we've got country insurance there, so it's kind of an insurance town, but kind of a quasi-college town with ISU being there. Anyway, yeah, so we've, uh, we opened November 23rd of 2007, and I think if you look back at uh, history, I think the Great Recession, you know, yeah, the bottom falls out yeah. about a week a week after we <laughs> open, right? So... We were opening a business with uh, the Great Recession starting. You know, a lot of businesses that started around then didn't survive, especially if you know if it's a restaurant, right? But um, so we really opened that um, our first brew pub, really as a like putting the recession aside for a second. But our whole concept at that point, there were some breweries making some great beers out there, but very few really focused on artisan food to pair with artisan yeah, beer. Right? right. We thought that was a huge disconnect. Right. so how can you like advocate for like great artisan beer, but not like have great f- food and hopefully right. some of it locally sourced from local farms and all that. So that was our concept essentially to have a, what we were calling a gastro brew pub. We didn't really use that term a whole lot, sure, but you sure. know, it was kind of best, you know, it was kind of a description of what we were trying to do. So kind of a, you know, and that's in normal, which back in 2007, it was just a Bud Miller town. Very, sure, sure. you know, no other breweries, of course, very uh, little craft presence at, at that point. Um, so we knew that the town, in order for them to really get used to craft beer, that we needed the food side to pair with that. So that's why we really started as a brew pub. That, uh, so that gets opened, and then the recession hits. Uh, but what, you know, where we could have, because of the recession, we, where we could have cheapened out, because it was a weird recession, because you know, people weren't going out, but the commodity prices were high. Right. So it was a really weird dynamic. You would think commodity prices would be low. So the temptation would have been to cheapen 
our product as a as a as a company, right? right. Cheapen our food, cheapen our beer, et cetera. What we did instead was stay true to our core, our core values, our our concept, and um, I think that's what got us through. Because if people were going to go out, we were giving them value in exchange for their you know hard earned dollars. Uh, of course, two thousand eight was um, that was a really rough time because we were just starting out. Uh, not only did we have the Great Recession to deal with, our uh, really we had a group of four of us that. Um, we're really the, the corporate team starting the company. You got myself, of course, Lynn and I uh, as the co-founders, but we also had um, Troy Nelson, uh, who was our managing partner, really the main guy for the whole restaurant side of the operation. I was bringing more of the business side and the, certainly the brewing right, side. Right. And then uh, his right-hand man, Jason Bratcher, uh, uh, Troy's wife, Lori, um, at that point, she, she was our controller. So that was really our core group, right? Right. And... Uh, you know, as if the recession wasn't uh, bad enough, we also lost Troy to cancer within a f- few months after we oh, opened. You know, he got yeah. diagnosed in February. He was gone in March. I mean, it was a, such a fast, uh, yeah, fast thing that n- none of us saw coming. So now we're uh, going through that as well. Somehow we survived 2008. So, wow. um, and uh, the effects of that recession really lasted for years. But somehow we got uh, our second brew pub. Um, financed and opened by April of 2011. So that gets us to our second brew pub. I'm doing all the talking now. I don't know if you're one to let me <laughs> so keep going. Two, two so we got two now. brew pubs now. Fast forward to, right. uh, you know, give me the you know, five, 10 seconds to the next, uh, all right. to where you so are today. All right. So, um, so you're right. We're two, two brew pubs, right? We yeah. decided to go to GABF for the first time in 2011, that yeah. fall after we opened in Champaign. So we go there as a really a, a, a no like an unknown brewery, right? right? From uh, the really the middle of nowhere, central Illinois. Uh, our first GABF, um, you know, the expectation is that just a lot of people walk by and don't really pay any attention or whatever. Well, um, what what set us apart, and this is where we, we'll start getting into. I think a lot more of our beers, et cetera. Out of the ten beers that we took that year um so yeah in uh, fall of 2011 eight uh six out of the ten were sour beers barely sour beers huh. so this is back when there weren't that many sour beers at gabf you have some of the pioneers in the industry Vinny, if you're listening your beers were there you know and you had lost abbey and it was just a handful right right um but suddenly there's this brewery in normal illinois that's got you know six barrel-aged sours um with our, within our saint decara reserve sour program so all barrel-aged uh, sours so we went from being uh an unknown brewery to uh within about 30 minutes of that gabf having a line across the aisle and we've all been to gabf <laughs> sure, and, uh, sure so suddenly we're uh we went uh, we went from unknown to hype, right? Okay. Unfortunately for us, we had no packaged product to sell and had to take advantage of it. I mean, we didn't even know what really hyped breweries meant, I guess, back in... And hype in 2011. Yeah, right. That was I don't even know what that means, right. right? But what I do know is that we couldn't take advantage of any of it because we had no packaged product. Yeah. We're just two brew pubs. So, right. okay, great. If you want to come try our beer, you have to either try it at a beer fest or you have to come uh, to normal or champagne. So... I guess you could say kind of hyped before our time, but it is what it is. What it accomplished for us, though, it gave us the confidence to um, open our first production brewery. Um, so, you know, going back you know, more on the beer side of things, like when I, 
when I went to Siebel at that point in time, this is like early 2007 before we opened, I didn't really even like or appreciate fully Belgian beers, sour beers, et cetera. But something happened at Siebel. You know, we went to the Hop Leaf and I learned everything there was uh, about sour beers, you know, during one of our classes at Siebel. Once you learn about the, you know, how, you know, the, the art and the science, that, and probably mostly art with sour beers, but a lot of science, um, once you learn what all goes into those and the, how complicated they are and have somebody actually explain those styles to you that knows what they're doing um, and knows, you know, as much as there is to know about them, um, something sparks and I got you know, went from not liking them to be really, being really passionate about it. So yeah. one of my goals after we opened Distill in 07 was to start a uh, barrel aged sour program. And uh, we started the first uh, sour barrel in May of 2008 and kind of slowly added more barrels as we went. Um, that brew pub, I think originally, you know, or it's, at some point we got up, you know, it wasn't really meant for barrel aging. It wasn't sure. designed for barrel aging. I think at some point we had squeezed probably about 24 oak barrels in there, all, yeah. all sour. So, you know, we started going to Fobab, um, which is festival barrel aged beers in Chicago with yep. those and GABF, et cetera. But anyway, that's, so what, in we didn't do it to make money because we we're normal Illinois. It wasn't sour. <laughs> there, it was not for business purposes, right? right? It right. was to pursue my own personal pa- passion for sour beers because there's no way a sour beer was going to sell in normal Illinois in right. 2007. And I remember back when we put those on tap, you know, back in the day, you know, they'd be on tap forever. It's like, ooh, that's sour. But if you go to a beer fest, like uh, Great Taste of the Midwest up in Wisconsin or anything up in Chicago, you know, then people really – uh, appreciated them, loved them, and that's kind of what we got known for as a yeah. brewery was uh, sour beers. And we, after we went to GABF, it was like that's definitely what we were known for. So yeah, 2011, that uh, GABF was a game changer for us because it did get us noticed. And so we finally got the production brewery going, and uh, our first production brewery going. Uh, the first batch, I think, was in uh, at the end of May of 2013. So here's the thing: we were opening that brewery to sell sour beers, right? Because that's where the demand was. But barrel-aged sours, you know, are going to take one, two, or three years to really finish out. Sure. So it's like, okay, great. Okay, we've got all this demand. We've got a production brewery, and now we won't have a, a sour beer to sell for a couple of years. This is great. Sure, Who, sure. Who's the idiot that came <laughs> up with this business plan? Yeah, let's spend millions of dollars in the capital to go build this thing for, to make a product that like, we won't sell yeah, for a couple and, of years. Right, and literally, like, every batch of beer we were brewing, I think from May until maybe August of 2013 was just filling barrels. That's a great concept. Let's make a lot of beer and let's not, let's not sell it. Like our first wholesale out of there of like non-sour beer was probably August of 2013. Mm. Um, Fortunately, we were able, you know, we had the brew pubs going, so they they were able to kind of help float this stupid idea, you know, (laughs) uh, uh, that I had of starting out with all these sours. Eventually, um, that was a 20,000 square foot space. About a fourth of that were, was for barrel aging. Uh, at some point, that brewery got up to about 750 oak barrels. Um, our first, I think, 200 came from Justin Winery in California, and slowly we added more barrels here, there, everywhere. We got three fooders from France. The shipping on those was as much as one of the fooders cost. One was a cognac fooder and then a red wine fooder and a white wine fooder. But um, so we were going all in on barrel aged sours. Right? Sure. I mean, that's the, the gist of all this. So, really, in order to um, fill the demand for our sours, 
before we actually had sours to sell, at least St. Decara sours, we decided to um, start making kettle sours, right? To, again, buy, buy us some time. So what we were doing as, um, I guess, a, uh, as a gap filler, or a stop gap or whatever, just to satiate the appetite for our sours while we were waiting on the barrel-aged sours, little did we know what that was going to turn into for us as a brewery. Uh, the whole wild sour series. So I think the first wild sour that we brewed was in November of 2013, like November, December of that year. So uh, those were draft only at that point. Uh, one was a Berliner counterclockwise. One was a Gosa, which was a, almost an extinct style, right? Sure, sure. Um, it was still relatively early days for the American version of the Gosa style. Exactly correct. So we... Um, we named that not just, you know, the thing about ghosts is everybody's got a cute name for ghosts, right? I mean, it's... Right. Um, it's pun- made for puns. It is made for puns. Our, ours, you know, our, our, our pun, which is here goes to nothing, it, it actually meant something to us as a brewery, which usually when we were rigging tanks and taking chances from an OSHA standpoint, uh, like using uh, brewers as ballast on the back of a forklift, trying to lift tanks that a forklift really right. shouldn't lift or whatever... Just any anything where you take chances on, we say here goes nothing. So it it kind of and and doing you know in, uh, embarking on this whole kettle sour thing uh, for us was kind of well here goes nothing or here goes to nothing. So it kind of it was yeah, kind of an inside yeah. joke more than a just a cutesy name. You know, uh, the the public would generally even really understand or appreciate what what that meant to us. But uh, counterclockwise too, um, again, kind of a kind of a fun name but for us it was kind of a uh the meaning of that original wild sour for us was that it was a very different souring process than what we were used to right so with saint decara uh we would brew a beer like normal uh so these aren't you know spontaneous fermentations which we've got some of those going as well we can get into all the different sours we've got but um like cool ships or whatever but saint decara it's not 100% uh, spontaneous at all. It's uh, regular primary fermentation. You can brew, you know, whatever beer style, but the the the, uh, the souring process though is. So we to this day we we've never bought a wild culture from a lab. Huh. So Central Illinois has a lot of farm ground around it. We have right, a lot right. of crap in the air that gives us all allergy problems, right? That makes us all sneeze or whatever. Well, it's that kind of air that produces great sour beers. That means there's a lot of stuff in the air, you know, from local farms, wild sure. yeast, right. bacteria, whatever. Um, so with our with Saint Decara, you know, we put a, a just a whatever beer. Let's say it's a um, a blonde ale. Doesn't, you know, doesn't really matter. You pick a style. Sure. We'll we'll put it in there. Um, just with re- regular um, fermentation. Let's say with an ale yeast uh, or a lager yeast. Doesn't matter. Uh, put it in. A, put it into a barrel. Uh, Prior, generally prior to that though um without giving away all of our secrets but it doesn't really matter anymore right with as many breweries that are out there but uh everyone knows everybody knows that, yeah right so the way we were generally doing it um because we did want to introduce the what was in the air in illinois inside of our barrels but um if if we're getting barrels let's say wine barrels from a uh let's say the justin winery barrels that could have, you know, who knows what in it as well. So we would steam the barrels first, you know, kind of have a neutral base. Right. And then as those barrels cool down, it'll suck in the air, our air, right? 
And that's literally all it took to start hmm. St. Decara. Um, it was not a, a pitch from a lab or whatever. St. Decara is, uh, you know, it's, again, they're not spontaneous fermentation, but the, the souring part of it is. You know, it's just hmm. uh, relying on the microflora that we have in the air, or whatever might have uh, survived the barrel uh, steaming process, which really most of it just comes from our air, given the consistency that we saw with it. So um, that's that was really how we did all those. But the wild sours, you know, kettle sours, the, the, the presumption is that you're buying a lactoculture, right, or throwing maybe yogurt in sure. or something right, like, like that. To good, stay, good belly or, yeah. Yeah, uh, to stay, I guess, true to um, – what we were trying to do as a as a brewery, um, we actually that is truly a wild culture. We have a house strain that we've had since really 2013 um, that we started back then. A pure lactobacillus? No. Okay. No, not at all. <laughs> Imp- impure. Okay. It, uh, yeah, not yeah. at all. I mean, that's kind of what, uh, why it's different. And we yeah. didn't name it Wild Sour Series be- because, again, it's a cute name. It's truly because it's a wild culture. Um, so when we were starting that that whole series, uh, we kind of grew up that culture from uh, multiple sources. Uh, one was dregs from our St. Decara barrels. So that was, you know, we knew that was uh, yeah. some natural microflora. Um, I think those first few batches, we had some acidulated malt, uh, as well. Uh, we also left the kettle door open for several days for those first few batches, just to let whatever's in our air just, uh, float in there. Um, and again, those first few kettle sour batches, you know, we'd let them tie up our kettle for, uh, probably four days. Okay. Um, just to establish a culture. Um, at, at a temperature or yeah, well, I mean, uh, generally around 100 degrees or so okay. and once fermentation starts you know you get that wild fermentation sure. uh, really maintains that um so we don't let that we don't do it that way anymore but yeah by i think it was march of 2015 we really had the culture where we wanted it and what we i kind of refer to this as caging the beast right we had this culture that could now sour beer within hours right, right. um so we put that into a little seven barrel tank in March of 2015 and that tank hasn't been open since then. Um, but this is really where the wild tower series is so much different because it's not just lactic culture from a lab. It's, it's really a mixed culture, but obviously the only thing that really has time to work is the lacto, right, but right. we know there's more in it. Right. So every batch of uh, wild tower that we do, we, We'll pull off maybe a half a barrel into a 60-barrel batch. We'll sour that. We'll feed the culture again just to keep it happy. Yeah. So we're just drawing from it, feeding feeding it, drawing from it, feeding it, but we haven't opened the actual tank since March of 15. Wow. That's cool. Let's talk a little bit more about that. I know that uh, you know plenty of breweries are struggling or there are plenty of pundits out there in the world of of beer that are trying to wrestle with this idea and balance between kettle sours and traditional sours and this kind of seeming battle between them. I'd love to, to, you know, mine your thoughts on that. But first, this episode is brought to you by Hopsteiner, your premium hop supplier dedicated to delivering quality hops and hop products in every package. Visit hopsteiner.com for a complete list of offerings or select shop hops to start ordering today. 
Also, Fermentus is the obvious choice for beverage fermentation. They've provided the beer industry from large and small breweries to home brewers with the best fermentation yeasts since 2003. Their yeasts are easy to use. Just pitch your Fermentus yeast directly into your wort. No rehydration necessary. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit Fermentus.com or visit them at the Craft Brewers Conference in San Antonio, booth 8071. Um, so Matt, you you know, you know start with this goal of brewing uh, traditional sour beers with this long aging process, taking fully fermented beer and then going through the one, two year process, you know, kind of Rodenbach style fermented beer that then becomes, uh, you know, a sour beer. But to you know uh, speed up that process and have a product, you you know take the same kind of mixed culture and, and make these quicker sour beers. Um, how has that quicker side of your business impacted sales and the identity of your traditional sours? Do they are they complementary? Do they compete against each other? How do you jive those as a company? It's yeah, it's been tough. I mean, what. Where we, you know, we have to pay a lot of homage to Saint Decara because that's really what started this whole thing. And then uh, the challenge for us has been we've been so busy with everything else between Wild Sours and uh, now uh, Nipa's, um, is that Saint Decara has been a neglected child. So our goal, I don't know if it happens this year. I really hope it does, but and it probably needs to. But we need to come back around, right? We need to circle back around and. Um, start spending some time on St. Decara. We've got some barrels that have a lot of age on them. Sure. And we're going to have to do some blending. Uh, we still probably got about, um, we did whittle down that program to about 500 barrels, maybe four or 500 barrels. Uh, when we moved breweries from the old one to the new one, not all, all that's of them your survived. definition of whittling down to 500 barrels. I think, yeah, I think so. Okay. If that's fair, <laughs> we knew not every barrel would make that journey. Sure, we and sure. to the, um, in, 2017 when we opened our new brewery you know we only have had the one ttb license so we you know we were allowed like i don't know so many days to really transition so we had to move 750 oak barrels you know from the old brewery to the new one knowing full well that not every barrel was going to make that uh journey successfully right and then we also had to wait and uh literally pull a nail from every single barrel after a few months to really see what did make the journey right. successfully and not of course we tried to purge airspace with co2 so if there was any uh obviously the beer is going to move around inside the barrel sure um but disturbing pellicles and everything else we want to make sure we had a co2 environment as, right, that, as right. that happened and hoping that the pellicles would uh, uh reestablish themselves most of the barrels made the journey fine but uh um uh, I, I do remember at some point, um, our head brewer did, uh, Alex did several barrels. I remember doing several hundred barrels myself, like, uh, pull a nail, you know, actually drilling sometimes yeah. for the, you know, for, for the first time drilling the holes and stainless steel nails. Thanks Vinny. And then, uh, that was a, that was a tough day because trying it probably took me a couple of days, but a lot of, uh, Tums, you know, going through that sure, many, sure, <laughs> through, sure through that many barrels and right. any barrel that didn't make it, we had the blue tape to put a big X on it, you know, that right. uh, had to be euthanized. And, uh, but you know, it, it kind of made the, I guess the whole program a little bit more manageable that the thing is, you know, what, what was also going on this whole entire time was the uh, death of the large bottle format on, right. uh, in retail. Right. So 
and just bottles in general being more difficult. And we've been going more and more to cans, which we can kind of get into that as well. But, um, which, you know, when we started wild sour series in 13, that was draft only, but by, uh, the fall of 2014, well, even before, really about a year before, we wanted to be the first sour beer in a can. Well, a couple of breweries beat us to that. One was Westbrook with their Gosa, and one was Anderson Valley uh, with their Gosa. And then here comes us. Well, we're okay. We're the third one out there. Um, but we decided to release, a, you know, the first entire series of uh, sour beers in, a, in cans. So we'll, I guess we'll claim, we'll see if any listeners will dispute this, but that we were the first series of sour beers in cans. And the and the third, I'm sure somebody will find an exception to that or say that somebody beat us uh, to. Uh, so somewhere in the top ten, you're we'll an, early mo- <laughs> well, an early, early mover, early mover, early uh, mover. Yeah. All we know is somewhere in there, right? Uh, all right. we all we know for sure is um, um, Westbrook and Anderson Valley. I'm sure there's another one in there that, uh, but it was an early entrant, and that that was kind of a game changer, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, back in our uh, barrel age showering days uh, with Saint Decara, I mean, that was like. Uh, blasphemy right to put sour beer in a in a can i mean they should sure. be in a cork and cage and selling for 25 dollars a bottle right. here we come and we're trying to sell a four pack for of wild sour series for 9.99 you know so it, it's a little industry changing because it made sour beer accessible yeah and um more affordable and more you know in in, in higher volumes as well so we uh what we did as again as a convenience to buy time before saint de came out ended up ultimately being um at one point probably about 60 to 70 percent of our production wow so and now it's because of uh the hazy ipas taking off so well it's probably more like 50 percent. so i like having a little bit more balance on the you know in the portfolio right now but uh that's, that's kind of where we're sitting that's a lot of canned kettle soured beer yep yeah um, talk to me about your approach to brewing it. You know, you mentioned you had the early ways of doing it and tying up your kettle for four uh, for four days. It's changed a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, what does that process look like for you? I mean, obviously now brewers tend to be much more concerned about oxygen ingress. You know, during that kind of lactic souring process, um, trying to you know get beneficial fermentation flavors out of that lacto souring rather than you know, negative stuff that they have to, you know, kind of pull out or, or you know, overshadow or compete against then with flavoring. Um, you know, from your perspective, obviously using this, you know, mixed culture to still continue to do that quick souring, um, you know, what does that, what does that look like for you? How do you, um, you know, uh, what goals are you looking for in that kind of uh, uh, flavor and sour output? And, uh, you know, what, uh, what do you find works for you to produce good results? Yeah, so the uh, process from the, uh, the early days at the old brewery to what we do now, um, I mean, we see that pH drop so fast now. I mean, even, you know, same same yeah. day. But uh, so usually, let's say we do the mash today, we're boiling it tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and it's generally, short, you know, it could be a shorter boil. But mm-hmm. um, uh but uh, what, one thing that has helped us a lot, you know, at the old at the old brewery, you know, we started with a twenty barrel brew house, and we were doing the starting out with sours. It would tie up that kettle uh, for way too long in, in those sure. early days. So we eventually had like some dedicated sour kettles, if you will. Well, the, the at our new brewery, we kind of uh, expanded upon that. So our our brew house, we have a standard sixty barrel brew house on one side with the mash lotter ton and the brew kettle and whirlpool but on the other side we actually have dedicated sour kettles one's a 60 and then we have 120 which actually has a, a gross capacity of 180 barrels if we don't uh, actually boil in it 
and then we have another uh, 58 barrel. Let's just call it 60 barrel. Uh, our uh, our original dedicated sour kettle, which we call Daisy, and at one point we converted a couple tanks into Bo and Luke. You can kind of get the the, the Dukes of Hazard uh, tie yeah. in there. So that's now, now these are sour, full on kettles that can reach boil. They're not just sour vessels. Uh, right now they um, they can be set up to boil in them. Oh, well. uh, right now they're not but okay that's the capability as we need to free up the main brew house sure, more and more sure. uh they are capable um one is a 60 that's already got a steam jacket on it the other the 120 barrel kettle actually is already kind of pre-designed to add a external calandria to it mm. so that's going to really help us as a brewery as especially as other beer styles take off for us like the deadhead ipa series all the uh hazy ipas to where we're going to have to uh boil on the you know, right in those sour kettles. So we call them sour kettles, but right now we're not boiling in them. Everything gets sure. boiled in the okay. boil kettle. So, but once we add souring there, then they can just stay in place and boil in place. And it's going to make it a lot easier for us to uh, produce those and keep the, the other system rolling with non-sour beer. So that's an incredible investment into making this very specifically <laughs> making this style of beer. Yeah. Sprinkman uh, uh, built this for us. And at that point, you know, this is the most unique system that they've built because uh, so much of our production are sour beers. We we had to have part of our system dedicated to that, you know, while right, allowing right. us to brew other beers. We couldn't tie up our system like that. Um, so it's you know, if we needed to, we could on this system we could produce over 400 barrels of wild sour in a in a day. But um, generally, we don't have to do that <laughs> yet. So, <laughs> it, but it's capable of it. Sure, um, sure. But uh, yeah, and so you know, right now it's. Again, probably about fifty percent of our production as it sits. So yeah, talk to me about um, you know kind of flavor goals, approach, inspiration. You know, for these kettle sour beers. Um, so yeah, what do you like? How did you idealize these? I mean, there were, you know, in terms of kettle sour beer, there weren't a lot of corollaries to look to as you started creating these things in twenty thirteen. Um, you know, you had to kind of envision something and then shoot towards it. And I imagine that you've also iterated that over, iterated on that over the the last number of years yep. as uh, as you've you know tightened processes, but also you know had more flavor inputs and tasted more things. Um, talk to me a little bit about how now you envision those beers, and uh, you know what you shoot for, and how you build ingredients and a process around that. Yeah, I actually think the uh, the uh, Wild Sour series now is probably better than ever. I mean, they're probably a little bit more tame. They you know uh, as far as the acidity levels. Um, Do you have a general goal for these, or does uh, it change by brand? Um, well, the goal was to make them a little bit more, um, I guess, drinkable, but without blending. So it's still okay. our, our goal not to blend them down. You know, yeah, that's kind of yeah. have been our, I, what I mean by blending down with like non-sour beers, right? Sure, like, sure. Like maybe putting 10% sour beer into a non-sour beer and just, you know. You're trying to hit your acidity goals and your pH goals with all a single, single stream beer and yep. not, yeah. It, okay. not, and not blending it down. Uh, which you could do that. It's just not what what we do. We just like that beer to um, stand on its own merits and controlling the souring process instead of right. blending it down with non-sour beer. Now sure. that could increase your volumes, obviously decrease the amount of investment you need in dedicated kettles, et cetera, because you can blend it with non-sour beer. But that's yeah. just not what still is. Whether it was back in the Saint Decara days uh, or now in the Wild Sour days, those batches are 100% soured. Um, We've done some uh, collabs like Ain't Nothing Normal with Night Shift where we we have done some uh, 
sour IPAs, uh, which has like a half of it's a soured batch and then half of it's not, and you blend it together, sure. add some fruit, and it's right. kind of those are real, those have been fun for us as well. Uh, but that's, that's under a completely different brand. So, um, of course, wild sours. We've got the you know the year rounds uh, are non-fruited, so we've got here goes to nothing to this day, still a year round brand for us. Flanders Red. You can sell a kettle sour beer without fruit in it. You, uh, you no, believe it or not, no, you can. I don't believe uh, you. I don't believe you. <laughs> uh, they don't have the growth rates that the um, uh, fruited ones do, or, right. or the cost. Sure, uh, sure. But um, it's great to be st- still uh, able to sell. Here goes to nothing, and then Flanders Red, which we've had also um, uh, f- for a long, long time as well, and then uh, Psychopathic, which is a dry hop sour. Uh, so it's a pretty cool beer as well uh, with that hop character that you get. But then all the seasonals generally tend to be fruited. So what, the big change we made this year, which is more on the business side, which I know we're not talking about as much, but the the uh, year rounds are six packs now. Like Wild Sour Series has always been four packs all across the board. The big change this year is that the year rounds are six packs hmm. just because we've got the volume to, you know, to, you know, yeah. or the capacity to brew a lot of, you know, good volumes of those. So we, we figured we'd, and because we don't have the cost in those as we do, with the fruited ones, we move those to six packs, but all the the fruited ones, the seasonals are still in four packs because mm-hmm. you use insane amount of fruits, hundreds of pounds of right, fruit in right. each one of those. Uh, and we use all real fruit as brewery. We don't believe in extracts, never will, never have. Why? Well, they taste like medicine or uh, some They don't kind all of, taste like medicine. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> I think they do. All right. No, uh, I yeah. mean, it, whether they do or whole, not. When you say whole fruit, are you talking about you also use well, puree? And, we'll we'll and use juice. purees. Okay. I, what I'm talking about is not using extracts. Fair, to sure. me, the extract right. process, you know, you end up with chemically flavored flavors, like kind of, the, like, again, I kind of refer to it as uh, medicinal or chemical kind of flavors. Uh, so it, it's where, you know, we just try to stay true to our core values as a brewery using real fruit. Um, but yes, mostly puree because it's the easiest for us to handle on sure, the scale sure. for sure. Um, we'll, we'll still play around with some, uh, whole fruits, you know, local stuff, you know, especially for the beer hall at the, at the brewery. But, um, uh, really anything for distribution is going to be generally in a puree form. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to talk about some other beer styles, uh, you know, before we finish up here and, uh, but before we do that, this episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications. Publishers of Small Brewery Finance by Maria Pearman, How to Brew by John Palmer, and the forthcoming Historical Brewing Techniques by Lars Marius Garshall. Established in 1986, Brewers Publications has published more than 50 books of enduring value for amateur and professional brewers alike. Visit BrewersPublications.com today uh, to browse the complete catalog of books and ebooks. Also, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep-dive email only for all-access subscribers, premium content, and all-access exclusive merchandise. Go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button, join now, support what we do, and help us uh, bring you conversations like the one we're having with Matt right now. Um, Matt, you mentioned New England-style IPAs are also a a hot-button growth item for you, as they are for a lot of breweries around the country talk to me about how you got into that and how you envisioned uh a variation on that style that was going to taste like a beer that uh that distill should make yeah so we're we've always been most known most known sorry as a um as a sour brewery right all that said i'm still a hophead at nature or or by nature so um 
this has given us an opportunity um, to really diversify as a company and um, and showcase that we can do more than just sours. Um, so, granted, we had to you know to get them where we wanted them, and for us, we wanted to distribute them. So it wasn't really easy because you know a lot of a lot of hazy beers will be sold out of a tap room just locally or whatever. Well, we're distributed in like 37 states. So the challenge for us was... It can't be a, this has to be drunk right. within three or four weeks and then it goes to shit. Correct. You know, it has to be And it actually has to be yeah. hazy though at the same time. Right, right. Right, because a lot of those that are more widely distributed, then they're not sure. really, truly hazy. They so start our, to just start to drop out. That's It's not stable. Sure. Correct. So that was our, our challenge is we wanted them for, for more than just the uh, the beer hall. We actually wanted to distribute them, so how can you possibly even think of distributing a hazy IPA and that wide of a footprint? The reason we have that wide of a footprint is because you know the market share for sours in any given market isn't going to be that much. So you know, distill as a as a brewery has always had to go more wide than deep, you know, as, right. from a marketing sure. strategy. Whereas sure. IPA brewers are going to go more deep, not wide at all. Right. So this is a little different for us because we're trying to introduce. Uh, now you have to create a product right. that fits your distribution footprint. Ideally, right. Yeah, Otherwise, yeah. you're going to have to limit it uh, to you know home state or whatever. So right. our our goal was really to develop one that uh, actually was shelf stable. And ours right now is uh, has a 90 day shelf life. Um, and uh, a lot of that was just again trying. You know, it took more pilots than what we're used to, but getting it to a point where it was you know, you got that permanent, hey, that doesn't mean some of that's not going to drop out and you want to kind of rouse the can a little bit. But what you don't want is like a bunch of slugs coming out either. Sure. Um, so a lot of that's just... Uh, What'd you learn through that process? Yeah, know, I learned back. a lot through that process. You know, I mean, I, um, I know there's been big controversies about hazy beers and uh, versus all the work that's been done for uh, decades about making beer not hazy, right? Sure, Which, sure. you know, it's just a different style. Right. Um, We've been brewers have been working on making beer hazy for just as long. We have this style called Hefeweizen. Yeah, which, right. Exactly. Which everyone's <laughs> been trying to make hazy for you know. Right. And so. one of our uh, uh, core beers, it's still a year-round beer for us, and was our, one of our first three uh, beers to brew as a uh, as distill was our Weisenheimer Hefeweizen. You know, so yeah, uh, nailing that. Um, that haze, you know, arguably we've we've been brewing that beer for not arguably we have been brewing that beer since 2007, so bringing some of that um, that knowledge into the picture too. So uh, obviously combining low flocculating yeast with high protein malts, uh, you know, generally around 25% high protein, you know, just kind of uh, that was a lot of that piloting process. Like, okay, no, we need actually more protein malts, yeah, and more protein, yeah. like more than we really would have thought to really make that permanent haze. Um, is there a mash regimen that you use to, to kind of you know, encourage that? Not really, okay. uh, but it's more in the uh, just a percentage of the high protein malts and generally a combination of flaked oats and wheat, um, and it varies a little bit based on the Deadhead um, brand that we're brewing uh, in terms of the actual malt bill. But generally, it's going to be a combination of flaked oats, wheat, uh, pills and malt, and some no, and some two row. I, I really like what the pills and malt does. Um, in combination with two row or by itself as yeah. a, um, uh, but, um, obviously in staying away from the, you know, any crystal malts, you know, we're not, uh, generally doesn't work too well, especially if it's gotta be good 90 days from now. <laughs> right. Exactly. So want to strip that out. Um, so, and then the, the timing of the hops too, right? So that you're per forming those, uh, permanent bonds, uh, with the polyphenols and the hops with the, with the proteins. Um, so no kettle findings, um, 
obviously, and adding whirlpool hops, uh, and then we we double dry hop everything essentially. Sure, so sure. We don't put double dry hop balance. Like I mean, I know I have talked to some brewers where they seem to, if there's their goal is that longer kind of time frame for viability of these beers, they tend to put a little more in on that hot side or that whirlpool, maybe a little less in on the dry hop versus some of those breweries that are focusing on fresh right now where um you know they definitely tilted in favor of the dry hop um do you find that that balance changes for you as a kind of production brewery that's moving beer out over time yeah i think what what's worked for us if we're adding overall like close to five pounds per barrel Mm -hmm. um two of of that'll be in the whirlpool okay but over uh different additions you know like okay like a 20 minute um and then a 30 um and then uh about three pounds split between a first dry hop usually around 68 degrees yeah uh that'll be about a third of um that remaining three pounds and then about uh two-thirds of that'll be um and that's really within that first like two or three days and then that second dry hop will be in in about seven days uh for that remaining amount so so you're working on a little bio transformation on that that first uh with some active yeast sure Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and so that second one will uh, be after we've raised the temp a little bit too, right. so from sixty-eight to seventy-two. So, um, you know, are there hops combinations in particular that you find yourself uh, specifically drawn to, or do your hops choices change because you are looking at this longevity? I mean, I know we all think of hops just as flavors, but you know, even hop, different hops varieties have different performance factors and different time frames for the viability of some of the flavors that they help produce. Uh, are there hops that work better than others for you for these beers that, you know, you need to last longer? Um, I mean, we've had a lot of success with Mosaic, El Dorado, um, even Cascade, which I mean, yeah, yeah okay, a boring hop, but it's, it's done really well with, uh, mm-hmm. with the hazy beers. Um, uh, certainly Citra, um, just started uh we've got a an upcoming one within the deadhead series uh called uh, driving that haze it's got uh, some cashmere in it so that's a different hop for us to yeah. use so that should be kind of fun uh and it's got amarillo in it as well so um a lot of it is kind of dependent on you know what's available sure because sure. the the quantities that we use you know sometimes that's a limiting factor but what we generally have tried to do is use like two or three varieties uh yeah. per yeah. uh per uh, release so that we can kind of adjust that uh, amount to what works you know with within the two or three hops that we're trying to use instead of having single variety hops right, right. It gives us a little bit more flexibility to find that right balance makes sense that makes sense um before we uh you know we're starting to to get towards the end here but i definitely want to start talking to you about uh, barrel aged uh, imperial stouts you okay. know dosvidania is something that helped put you all on the map with us years and years ago sent in some for a imperial stout review that we were doing and uh, i think it just blew us all away with how um concise and focused and direct and clean and spirit influenced um, but also rich in supporting the you know that whole beer was um, scored incredibly highly and became a favorite of ours around craft beer and brewing magazine you've obviously won uh, some uh, medals at FOBOB for that as well talk to me a little bit about uh, how you brew those uh, that Dosvidania family of beers and these clean barrel aged beers for that kind of success right so we're not again we're not just a sour brewery yeah. i mean dos Vidania has been one of our most celebrated and awarded beers and it's um 
you know, it, it does speak to our barrel aging, um, I guess, experience with, uh, that we've had with St. Decara, but these are clean beers, so it's a very different world for us. Um, it, uh, I appreciate all the feedback on that because we, you know, that's what we think about it too. It's just got just the right balance of barrel, uh, chocolatey notes, you know, it kind of depends on the variant cause we got dose bourbon, which is, um, the, the original. And then we've got dose rye, which has some rye, which has a little, adds a little spicy note. And then, uh, that's generally what we distribute, but then we, we actually have variants at the brewery. We've had a dose coconut, dose, uh, vanilla rye this year. We've, uh, we had several, uh, Mexican chocolate coffee, uh, double barrel, which was white port, uh, barrels and bourbon barrels or, um, and then, uh, I think I'm forgetting one. I know I'm forgetting one now that I'm thinking about it, but anyway, is this like a, you know, so in, in talk, talk to me about the approach to this, you know, blending is off, especially in these kinds of barrel aged beers is something that's more common. Do you conceive of these individual releases as single stream beers? Are you building a blending stock? Is it a similar recipe? Obviously rye and bourbon is going to be a little bit different. Maybe, um, you know, are you changing these recipes based on the barrels and the treatments that are going into these beers? For sure. Um, you know, talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So like, right. Uh, dose rye, you know, would actually have rye, uh, in the recipe. Um, Mm. And we also uh, put that in rye whiskey barrels to pair with it. Um, and then we've, uh, our other main bases, uh, just dose we 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 call it dose bourbon because it's in bourbon barrels generally heaven hill uh and then the rye whiskey barrels uh we're getting those from sagamore spirits maryland uh Mm -hmm. distillery um so those two will generally act as our base for all the variants one one you know uh either or both of those right Uh, and then we're doing the treatments uh so you know again those are our main distributor ones but we'll take uh either some of dose bourbon or some of dose rye and then we'll do the uh, the treatments out of that. So generally we'll, um, the, uh, barrel aging process, uh, doesn't involve all those other treatments yet. We'll do that more on the, uh, uh, bright tank side, you yeah. know, adding yeah. whether it's a toasted pecan or, uh, uh, whatever else we're going to add the coffee right. or whatever. So, uh, but as far as the barrel aging process, generally we're using either, either of those recipes, dose rye or the, okay. the original dose. And I think a mistake a lot of people will make with uh, bourbon barrels is probably aging them for too long. Hmm. Uh, We've done a talk at Fobab about about that before. And, you know, at a certain point, we have done one release of Dose where it was aged for about twice as long, which was pretty cool. It was a great beer as well. Um, But but generally, uh, the barrel aging process uh, is going to be more like four months or so for those. so that yeah, and that recipe, I mean, it goes back to I think two thousand nine or so when we brewed the first one. Um, it's actually uh, do another probably shout out, but uh, Keith Gabbett, who's now the I think the brewmaster at Goose Island, he was actually our first assistant brewer as uh, as a brew pub in uh, Normal. Yeah. Um, and he was moving back to Chicago, so brewed Dosvidania just to say goodbye to him. It was a Russian Imperial Stout, so we named it Dosvidania to say goodbye. Right. Uh, out of respect for him, and he moved on to Goose Island, and you know he's worked his way up and to become their brewmaster now. But um, 
so it started for us just to you know to serve that purpose has kind of grown into a pretty cool brand for us and we still have dos fadani days and uh, uh it's always a saturday before thanksgiving uh with you know i know bottle releases are challenging in the industry right now there's so many of them uh, but we'll have several hundred people line up outside the brewery, uh, even to this day, even with sure, the challenges sure. in that, in that large bottle format. But the big change for us last year, um, you know, Dos Fidani was always in a 500 mil bottle with, uh, uh, with some of them in wax or whatever. Right. Last year we switched to cans, you know, we, we were, we thought for sure there'd be a big, uh, big controversy about that, <laughs> but but at the same yeah, time, we're like, yeah. well, how could there be controversy? Because everything is going into cans right, right now. So it actually worked out really well. It allowed us to kind of introduce a lot more uh, variants this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, they looked great. They were in a black can, black lid. It was oh, really nice. cool. So yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, it's, uh, it's all about balance in that beer. Yeah. Uh, just trying to – I can't really give the secrets to it, obviously. But uh, it's worked sure out pretty can. well between sure a JBF medal and uh, Best in Show <laughs> and a runner-up Best in Show. Got something you – know, you know something there with yeah. that one uh that we'll uh we'll probably keep that one a little closer to our chest but uh fair enough fair <laughs> enough um matt if people want to learn more about uh, distill where do they find you guys uh distill.com it's just that easy and it's got all of our uh that's Twitter. d-e-s-t-i-h-l that's correct distill. yeah okay. and uh purportedly we've got some facebook account and twitter account and instagram and all that i'm one of the last humans that doesn't have I, i'm not on social media but i know <laughs> our company is so I'm, we've got people that uh, maintain that but uh uh, anyway, there, we can be reached through all that as well, but uh, all that information can be on the website at distill.com. Gotcha. I gotcha. GND Chillers offers innovative modular designs. Old Orchard invites you to step up your fruit game. Hopsteiner is your premium hop supplier dedicated to delivering quality hops and hops products. Fermentus is the obvious choice for beverage fermentation. And Brewers Publications has published more than 50 books of enduring value for amateur and professional brewers alike. If you've enjoyed this episode, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, and become a supporter and member of our craft beer and brewing extended family. Um, Matt Potts from Distilled Brewing, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It's fun. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.